You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us uh, for our, I think, is it our, not quite our last fellow in focus of this academic year, but uh, the penultimate one. Um, and I want to say a few words first about Needy and the position that she occupies here because she is our second Rooney Writer Fellow. Uh, and the Writer Fellowship. Um, in the Trinity Long Room Hub is generously sponsored by Dr. Peter Rooney uh, who can't be with us today but sends his best wishes uh, and he continues the work of his aunt and uncle Dan and Patricia Rooney who fund our Rooney uh, Literature Prize in Trinity. But the idea of the Rooney Writer Fellow is that we have a distinguished creative writer with us for a period of time who works with our researchers and, and helps us think from different angles about the research that's going on in the Hub, as well as producing their own writing. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to uh, have Needy with us today. Um, Needy Zach is a poet and a pacifist and a fabulist, and I'm not going to read all of her biography because we want to have time. Um, but many of you, I think, would have seen by now her first collection, Auguries of a Minor God, published by Faber, in 2021, and uh, a wonderful book of poetry which has already attracted acclaim and been nominated for prizes and indeed won prizes um, and uh, been selected as a book of the year by the Irish Times and the Irish Independent. Um, Needy is also a humanitarian and a peace activist uh, and is also um, uh, something of a visual artist with a strong interest in the visual arts. And this crossover is something that is informing the work that she's doing, or some of the work that she's doing at the Trinity Long Room Hub, inspired by Joseph Boyes' um, conversation, how to explain pictures to a dead hare. She's working on a project, Honey and the Hare, which is going to interrogate this crossover that we've been talking about quite a bit recently in the Hub, um, between the human and the more than human, including um, the animal world. So, I'm delighted that she's with us today and she'll be able to flesh out some of what I've been uh, trying to introduce. But who better to be in conversation with Needy today than our own Sean Hewitt. I say that with pride and possessiveness uh, because he is my uh, colleague in the School of English in Trinity, but he is also a poet, a writer and a critic. Um, his scholarship um, includes very important work on Irish literary history seen from the point of view of uh, the natural world. And his uh, first book, 2021, J.M. Singh, Nature, Politics and Modernism, did exactly this by looking back at uh, J.M. Singh's work through the lens of environmentalism. And he's continuing this emphasis in his current project, Acts of Enchantment, Natural History in British and Irish Literature. I'm going to put the dates in because I bet you don't stick to them, Sean. 1870 <laughs> to 1930, we'll hold you to that. But of course, Sean is also known to many of you as an acclaimed poet. Um, his collection, Tongues of Fire, from 2020, again, like Needy's work, has won numerous prizes and accolades, as has his more recent, absolutely wonderful memoir, All Down Darkness Wide, which I know many of you would have read since it was published uh, last year in 2022, and Sean is currently working on a new project uh, which will look at queer tales from the classical Mediterranean, a reinterpretation of 
classical Greek and Latin mythological material, um, which uh, we're looking forward to, and it's going to be titled 300,000 Kisses, coming out next year, I think. This year? October. This year? Yeah. Um, so, Sean and Lee have many overlapping interests, uh, but poetry, I think, is at the core of that relationship. So I'm just delighted that they are going to be in conversation today. We will have time uh, after they've talked for about 40 minutes or so, 35 minutes perhaps, to take some questions or thoughts from you. Um, so store those up. And the one thing I'm going to ask of both of you is please do use the microphones um, just so that everybody can hear because the acoustics in this room are a little bit challenging. But thank you both and I'll hand over to you, Sean. Thank you very much. Um, it's really nice to see so many people here uh, of a, I was going to say Wednesday lunchtime, Tuesday lunchtime. Um, I always jump at the opportunity to, to talk to Nidhi because uh, I learn a lot <laughs> from her. Uh, so it feels a little bit selfish uh, of me to, to have accepted the invitation to do this. Um, I know these fellow and focus conversations tend to um, focus on the trajectory of a life. Um, so, Nidhi, I wanted to ask you to begin with uh, a very big question, which is how did you become a poet, or perhaps why uh, did you become a poet? If you answer it accidentally, I never thought I would be a poet. Um, I never thought I would be a writer. So I, I grew up in a very sort of itinerant way, um, my parents, my father was working in the Middle East, which is where I spent the first six or seven years of my life. And then when the Gulf War started, um, people were evacuated, we were sent back to India, which is where I was born. And while I was there, um, my parents started visiting this monastery. And they eventually um, stopped visiting, but I kind of kept, kept going there and eventually ended up living there for a while. Um, because I was fascinated by the, the practices that um, they were following, which was sort of a tantric, um, magical practice that had lots of spells and incantations, and so I was quite taken by this. And so I, I ended up sort of living there for probably early, early teens, and then I went to a boarding school for a couple of years. Um, and then I went to college in the States, so I've kind of had a very um, <laughs> necessary sort of migratory um, trajectory in terms of where I was. And the thing that kind of kept me rooted to the places that I was in, where many times I didn't speak the language or I didn't know the culture necessarily, was um, folk tales and mythology and stories that seemed to me to be <coughs> universal in a way that crossed over the boundaries. You'd see resonances in the, in the tales, in the animals, in the kind of recurring themes. Um, so I then spent um, time traveling and living with indigenous communities, so in New Zealand, um, in New Mexico, and sort of southwestern um, United States. Um, and here as well, where I have found that the, the folk tales um, in sort of ancient Ireland and, and Celtic um, mythology really seemed to map onto Indian um, folk tales in a way that I was actually mm. quite surprised with, um, as well as the language, you know, the sort of proto-Indo-European roots of, of words. Um, so that's sort of where this um, new project came about. But in terms of becoming a poet, <laughs> 
Um, it was accidental in, in the sense that I, I had come to Ireland to do a creative writing degree at UCD um, based on the fact that I had been a journalist for many years and I wanted to spend a bit of time on the creative side of things. Uh, so I thought I'd do this degree and then I'd have time to sort of um, work on the aspect of it and see if anything would come of it. But um, my, my mother was quite sick uh, during this time. She had a, an autoimmune disease. And about 10 days after I, I landed in Ireland, um, she, she died at home. So I had to go back um, and there was a funeral and I was in India for about 10 days. And when I came back here, and this was a really interesting experience for me because it has never happened to me before. But I, I had this, as soon as the plane's wheels sort of touched the, the runway, all the language that I had just evaporated. Like I couldn't actually speak, I couldn't find it. It was so interesting to me because I, I had English, like English was my native language that I'd spoken since I was born. And I also had other languages that I'd learned along the way, you know, in India and Hindi and... Spanish and French, and there were no, <laughs> there was no single word in any language that was available to me. Um, and in the months that followed, I couldn't write anything, but I couldn't even string a coherent sentence together. And so for a while, I thought um, that I would have to sort of defer the degree and you know um, go back home. But then I spoke to. Um, faculty at UCD and they said, you know, whatever, whatever it is that comes out, in whichever way it comes out, um, just use that as a form of expression. So I started, um, there's a book called The Morning Diary by Roland Barth, and he wrote that over a year after his mother died. So I, I found that, and sometimes it was just one sentence on a day which said, you know, I can't, I can't say anything today or I can't find anything um, to talk about. So I, I used that as a bit of a springboard and I also... Um, there were a lot of strange kind of doodles and glyphs and dreams um, that I would record. And those sort of became the, the seeds, I suppose, for the, what became my, my first poetry collection. Um, but it was not intentionally. It was, for me, um, a sort of exploration which um, um, it sort of went around the periphery of language for me, so it wasn't, I, I wasn't trying to say something. It was like something was trying to be said through poetry. Um, so I had to learn, <laughs> to learn how to become a poet along the way. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's a really fascinating story, and there's so much that I kind of want to pick up on. I'm trying to decide what to ask you first. But um, in the first part of Auguries of a Minor God, I think it's in two. Is it just the two parts? Yeah. Um, the first part of these, what you might call like lyric poems, maybe you have a different way of calling them. And the second part is, is kind of an epic, long poem. Uh, and they seem to me to have different relationships to silence, which seems to be something you come back to often. Uh, those first poems make full use of the space of the page. Uh, sometimes when I'm reading them, um, I'm given the choice whether to say one word or another word, or whether to complete one word, uh, whether it's through crossings out or brackets or things like this. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a bit more broadly um, about your relationship to silence. Um, there is 
uh, an obvious, well, perhaps there's not a tension for you, but um, a sense of, you know, being a poet, someone who speaks mm. and writes mm. for, uh, on a daily basis, or, or, you know, is invested in that. And someone who is also, it seems to me, quite invested in silence, mm. too. I think silence has always been probably what I would call my primary practice. So I might not write every day, and I might not read every day, but I am definitely consciously silent every day. Um, I think the at the root at the root of silence for me is this um, capacity not to choose. Um, not to judge, not to discriminate between what is in front of me. Um, so for me it's a lot like when, when I'm speaking to a microphone, for example, um, the microphone isn't looking for what's important, it's just relaying everything. And when I try and listen in that way where I'm not picking up things that seem valuable to me for some reason or another, you know, that I've decided have a higher priority in my own kind of personal hierarchy of what's important. Um, I feel like I'm actually engaging with, with existence as it is and not as I want it to be. And so I think what silence does for me is it allows me to be more authentic in the world, it allows me to be more real with the world because I'm not um, creating this kind of scenario for myself where I pick the people and the situations and the ideas and the you know opinions that I want to be part of my identity in a way and then kind of formulate it around that. Um, and I do I do have this tension that you described in terms of when I write or when I speak, there is a sort of assumption of authority like somehow the words are important or more important than someone else's mm -hmm. for some reason that I haven't really been able to, to quantify myself either because I don't feel like that when I speak. Um, so there is a, there is some sort of um, opposition I suppose there where I start to wonder, you know, am I a different person when I'm in public than I am when I'm by myself or, or in private with people who know me. Um, and I keep thinking back to, I think it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez who said every person has three selves, a, a public self, a private self, and then a secret self. And I think it's been my <laughs> maybe um, unconscious kind of quest over the years to merge those three in a way, so to not have myself be different when I'm talking in front of a group of people or I'm talking at home with my partner or, or when I'm by myself, you know. Um, but it does leave you in kind of a very invulnerable position because um, I think we, we anticipate the judging mind. Like we anticipate that we will be perceived um, through the judging mind. And I think this is also why I gravitate towards um, being with animals and being in the natural world more is because I feel like they don't they don't have that and they don't perceive you in that same way and they are the way they are and you are the way you are in the moment and they don't carry the 
the impressions of the last time they interacted with you yeah. into this moment, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. So I think they, they do kind of dovetail in that way, um, <laughs> which is a very interesting question. And then the last I like the, um, the idea of, um, you know, you use the example of the microphone not having a hierarchical sense of what it picks up or not. Uh, and you, I can't remember if you used the phrase now, but it, it reminded me of uh, the idea that kind of ecological ways of, well, one of the terms you come across often is being in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of uh, it's not a way of looking or it's not a way of seeing or speaking or something, it's a way of being in the world. And when I was reading through um, Honey in the Hair, your introduction to it, um, one of the things that struck me kind of repeatedly was the way in which possibly religious ideas or spiritual ideas are interacting with ecological or even eco-criticism and uh, ideas of animism or animatedness or uh, um, sort of vital materialism of Jane Bennett and people like this. And I wonder if you have, what, what do you see as the relationship between this kind of enchanted or magical world you sketch out as kind of fundamental to your poetry uh, or even to you, um, and this new project which is looking into the more than human as well. Um, are there relationships between the spiritual and the ecological for you? I, I find it hard to draw a distinction between spirit and nature um, because I do believe that everything is animate. Um, <laughs> I do believe that everything experiences the world in a certain way. It may not be the same way that we do, but they do, they are in contact mm-hmm. with the world around them. And so I don't think that the world around them is necessarily separate from them. And I think that's one of the places where we trip up as humans is that we are so separate from the world in which we exist. Like even buildings like this where we're isolated in, in, in the way we work, in the way we, we live, in the way we speak to each other, in the way we kind of transport ourselves. <laughs> we, we've lost contact with, and it's not even just physical contact, it's sort of the, 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 the animal part of us, you know, the fact that we're, we're affected by by the weather, by the by the phase of the moon, like it's going to be a full moon, you know, and I don't know if we didn't have the internet, would we even know that necessarily? And it's so strange because it's up there, you know, <laughs> but we don't look up there because we're looking at our screens most of the time. And I find it really, I think a lot of the, um, the loneliness that we experience um, is not necessarily a longing for, um, contact with our own species as much as it is for that intimacy with the rest of the of, of what we're made of, you know, the, the things that make us us. And there's there's a longing there that I think we have displaced and perhaps misplaced and tried to um, address with things or I don't know, um, ideas or 
uh, circumstances, but I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily um, tangible for us anymore. You know, so when I when I put my hands in the earth, for example, my 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 skin is is speaking with the earth, and I don't necessarily have words for what that conversation is, but I know it's happening, you know, and I think if we wander in the world in a way that every every sound can actually be a voice, you know, and every gesture can be a movement, like you see it sometimes when, I don't know, the clouds are sort of moving across a mountain face or, you know, the, the, the brook is kind of going over stones and singing, like there is a there is a kind of symphony in the in the natural world that we are also part of. But I think one of the things that happened for me um, and that I think happens for people when we write things down is that we preclude other beings from communicating with us in a way. So the facility for language exists with every being um, and animals, for example, you know, talk all the time. Um, but I think once we start, once we start recording our thoughts as words, those other beings can't interact with us anymore in the same way, and they can't interact with our communications. And so we're sort of shutting ourselves off in a way. Um, whereas. In, 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 in ancient cultures or more animistic cultures, um, they saw every creature as being part of that, mm -hmm. and sometimes even more than part of that. Sometimes, like the hare, for example, was a um, part of a creation myth in um, the Algonquin tribe where they saw him as sort of the great creator, you know. So there is this sort of, and of course, um, all over, you know, native cultures, in indigenous communities, animals are usually gods or deities in, in some sense. And so I think there is this thing that we, that we do to ourselves where, where we sort of, um, we isolate ourselves out of the fear of what would happen if we actually interact with the uncertain, uncertainty of the world in which we exist without realising that we are we are actually that world as well, you know, and, and therefore that fear is sort of for me a bit a bit misplaced sometimes because it is um, sort of preventing us from having an intimate relationship with um, something that is is where we Yeah. Where we are. I like I really like the idea of of you know ourselves having unhomed ourselves from the world or, and perhaps that being central to a sort of loneliness not being at home uh, how do you remake yourself at home with the world um, I'm just back from Salem <laughs> uh, so witches are in my mind um, and in your introduction to Honey in the Hair perhaps you know that's part one of this question is if you could do a brief overview for everyone here on the work that you're doing here but you were talking about language as magic, spells and enchantments, uh, but also language as a sort of power. Or I think the quotation, I've forgotten who it's from now, was language as trading in power. Um, 
and there was was it Fran Locke uh, mm. talking about witchcraft and, and this sort of the disenfranchised and the powerful uh, language as power. Um, so yeah, perhaps you can explain the honey in the hair and the work that you're doing here, um, but also uh, speak a little bit about that relationship between power in language um, and perhaps positive power as well as uh, negative power uh, and the new ways in which you might be using language in this uh, project. Um, it is, even as a poetic project, and all poet poetic projects are interested in language, this seems to be more than um, more than most particularly interested in language itself, the material of the poem. Um, so are there kind of practical ways in which you have learned to use language differently in this project? Or, or what do you imagine a new poem from this project might feel like, or what might its address to the world be? Or is that even the wrong way of framing it? <laughs> Um, well, Honey in the Hair is um, it's a project that I'm doing here where I'm looking at um, indigenous languages, but not necessarily like human indigenous languages, but um, um, more than human beings who may be indigenous to this land. So the hair, for example, is the oldest um, surviving indigenous mammal in Ireland. And um, honey has been, you know, bees have been known to, to be here um, since, uh, since before Christianity. Um, and I kind of wanted to look at um, how we might reacquaint ourselves with um, other beings who, who have inhabited this space long before us. And to me, poetry seemed like um, a natural way in because of the oral element of it. So. Part of what I find with our more kind of digitalized culture at the moment is that it's a very uh, cosmopolitan culture, it's a very urban culture, it's very um, globalized in a sense. But oral culture is very place-based, it's very local, so the stories in this valley and this island are not necessarily stories that you hear if you go across to the next um, valley or island. And so if you're looking at re-establishing re or um, reconnecting with um, a very sort of place-based um, storytelling, you're looking, I think, at replenishing an oral culture. And mm. um, so what I'm trying to do with this um, project is to find ways that we can transcend the um, the meaning of words and actually move towards um, the, the meaning that sounds carry. So it's not necessarily the, you know, the definition of a word that actually helps me understand something, but it's the, it's the tonality of the voice, it's the, it's the rhythm, it's the melody, it's the something, if I say it, there's still something that you understand in that, even though it sounds like gibberish because they're not words. 
So there's something about this where I think that sounds actually carry meaning and something in us has to reattune our ears to when we hear the sound of a river flowing or, or the wind coming through or anything that um, doesn't have a, a, a sort of semantic definition that we've said like this is the word and, and this is the meaning and that association um, which for me is a, what would you call it, it's like a, there's a leap you have to make in your imagination from whatever to, you know, whatever comes up in my, in my head when I see that word. But there is no leap that I have to make when I hear something um, speaking to me. And whenever I say hear, it's not necessarily through my ears. I think we hear in different ways. Like we hear through our eyes, we hear through our skin, we hear through um, breathing, for example. So somehow reanimating our own um, existence within our own animal body, I think, is the, is the key to kind of being able to then translate that to other um, more than human. Um, and I don't like saying that word again, or that phrase, because it, again, it, it centers us. It's like there's the human, yeah. there's the more than human, you know, but it isn't like it is. I think we have to um, re uh, assess our place in the world mm. um, and, and not have us be kind of the centre of everything because we're not the centre of everything, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's everything. This week I'm, I'm teaching W.H. Hudson. I don't know if you know him. He's a South American writer. We're doing a book called A Hind in Richmond Park. Um, and it begins with him seeing this hind in Richmond Park, uh, flicking its ears and moving around. And over the course of the book, he... Uh, identifies what he thinks are certain latent but lost senses mm. in the human body. Uh, so uh, being attuned to wind, for example, is one of them. Uh, he also has an idea that we might have a magnetic sense. and He is looking at the animal instincts and trying to map back onto the human what might be lost. And it seems like, you know, uh, it's quite an auspicious week to have this conversation and to be teaching that as well, because you've put me in mind of that. Um, just finally, to go back to Aubrey's of a Minor God, um, I know myself that it can be particularly strange to return to writing after publishing. There's this kind of odd relationship between uh, kind of letting go of the poems, those being out there, those being what? most people know of you um, and then having to go back and write again uh, and I wonder what your relationship now is or what, your, um, what changes uh, when you come back to writing again uh, do you feel differently about the poem or do you feel differently about writing now that you have a book and are working on something new or does it feel like the same process I think I never thought of publishing a second book. <laughs> so the poems that I write now are not necessarily um, of the same heart. Like they're different. Um, they're usually quite project-based poems. So there's this one, for instance, which would be a long poem, and then there are a few others that I'm working on. Um, there is a project that I am working on that I don't know if, if I will um, publish, but it is a series of kind of um, movement poems, so it's looking at the way that uh, certain animals move 
and for example horses gates you know and they have these different gates and trying to um, I suppose imitate the rhythm of those um, movements in the poem so that it's not really the words that are important but again it's the it's can you reflect that um, that gesture on the page mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's possible mm -hmm. um, I don't know if what is lost is too much mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, that is something that I'm working on um, just for myself but I also I don't really know if and it's strange for me because I also like I work um, with a publisher outside um, of my writing and it's it's interesting to me to see a writer's journey I don't necessarily feel like I don't necessarily feel like I'm a writer mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't sort of call myself one poet as far as I've gone but I, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a writer because I think a writer is someone who um, who is looking to create a body of work um, and I, I was not looking to create a body of work, I was looking to answer questions for myself that I had um, about language um, and I think it's Lynn, Lynn Hijinian who has like a really interesting essay in which she says um, poetry is the language that we use to investigate language and I think that's what it is for me, is it's not so much about presenting something um, to the world, it's more about trying to interrogate something for myself that I don't particularly understand. Even now, even after having published that, that yeah. one who can write any of the poems, like there is something elusive. And I think there's um, a novelist, Benjamin Lavatu, and he says uh, he calls literature one of the dark arts, and he says that the purpose of literature is to is to cloak things, it's not to reveal things, it's not to make them um, visible or understood, it's to, it's to cloak them so that you can encounter that mystery once more. And I think it is something like that for me with poetry, is that there is an enigma, there is a mystery at the heart of something. I don't necessarily want to um, understand it or have it be understood, but I do want to approach it or come close to it, and I think that's what poetry kind of yeah. allows me to do. Yeah. And I hope that when people do read my poems that something of that encounter kind of remains. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. I think I have this uh, quack theory um, that every poet has this other art form that they are trying to approximate in poetry. So for mine it would be music. I'm a bad musician so I try to write a poem that feels a bit musical. Or you can kind of feel poets who are kind of dramatists and like a character in the scene or that like painting perhaps in the movement of that and it seemed when you were speaking that perhaps in one sense kind of the, the silent and the spiritual was kind of approaching your poem uh, but also in capturing movement perhaps your visual your visuality or, or painting or, or something comes into it um, 